investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamachko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome, investors, to episode 19 of the Absolute Return podcast. I'm your host, Julian Klamachko. And I'm Mike Kesslering. Today is a lovely Monday, June 24th, 2019. Got a lot of important events happening in markets, global economy to chat about this week. And number one, off the top, the Fed hints at rate cuts and the markets rejoice. What's next? We're going to chat about Facebook. It's Libra cryptocurrency. That was discussed a lot this week, but we're going to chat about, is this really a cryptocurrency? We're going to get into some of the details behind the structuring on that stablecoin. We're going to chat about Slack's uh, going public through a direct listing instead of a typical IPO. Also going to chat about uh, the HBC uh, Go Private, uh, which is getting done and the market, uh, specifically activist investor, is not too happy with the price offered. Lastly, we'll talk about a recent blog post just on quality investing and how that works. Big news on the U.S. economy last week. You had the FOMC coming out with their rate decision, specifically Fed Chairman Jay Powell. He indicated his willingness to support the U.S. economy through monetary policy. The Federal Open Market Committee deciding uh, to hold rates steady, not enact an interest rate cut that some market participants were expecting. Consensus was to leave rates steady, so it wasn't necessarily unexpected. But Powell did hint at future rate cuts, which is a change. And he stated, quote, an ounce of prevention is worth more than a pound of cure, which I thought was a pretty interesting quote from the uh, Fed chairman there. Powell emphasized that new information between now and July 31st, that's the date of the next meeting of the FOMC, the Federal Open Market Committee. This would be crucial to near-term monetary policy. Specifically, this date uh, over the next few weeks will include the outcome of a meeting at the G20 summit in Japan later this month between President Trump and Xi Jinping, the Chinese president. What they're going to do is they're aiming to resolve the trade tensions between the US and China that have spooked businesses and investment across the US and globally. But for now, the FOMC decided to keep rates steady, but noted of quote, uncertainties about the outlook. Another interesting piece of language that is new because really this meeting uh, showed how reactive they are to the market and and what the market is demanding out of them. Kind of makes you question their so-called independence. Nonetheless, eight of the Fed's 17 officials are forecasting lower rates this year. One of the biggest challenges for the Fed in contemplating rate cuts is that U.S. economic data, which we've touched on lots throughout historical podcasts, this data has not deteriorated to the point where officials and other economists fear a sharp slowdown or recession which could easily justify monetary easing through interest rate cuts specifically. Typically, we do see aggressive rate cutting by the Fed in a recession, not when GDP is effectively booming. So these Trump-she talks at the G20 could result in anything from a truce, which obviously we would be uh, incredibly positive, all the way to a full-blown escalation in this trade war that would offer Mr. Powell a much more straightforward case for easing policy and cutting interest rates. 
some market action, inflation, it has consistently been running below the Fed's target 2% rate, which is indicative and it gives them room to cut rates because they're trying to stimulate the economy such that inflation is within their 2% range. And it really hasn't been uh, over the past 10 years. They've really struggled with getting inflation up to their target 2% level. The market implied probability of a 25 basis point cut in the Fed's interest rate in July has jumped. I think it's approaching 100% as we speak. And they're even pricing in a decent chance of a 50 basis point cut, which would be, uh, in my opinion, unexpected. What are your thoughts on the FOMC and what they're doing with uh, interest rates here? Yeah, so it's funny that you mention the uh, Fed independence as Trump has been tweeting lately about the possibility of demoting Powell, which it's quite unclear whether he would actually have the authority to do so. But nonetheless, it is something that is gathering um, some steam in the media. Basically, I think what has been rumored would be demoting him to a Fed president and then installing a new a new chairperson. Yeah, I really don't see a lot of validity to this, but interesting nonetheless is, you know, with, with the Trump administration, there will always be random tweets being fired off. Oh, certainly. And it appears that Jay Powell, the Fed chairman, is really just trying to save face, act somewhat independently and blame it on market conditions. But ultimately, he seems to be doing what Trump is desiring, perhaps not as quickly as he'd like and not as easy policy as Trump would prefer. But however, he really has done a complete 180 uh, versus his stance last year of steady rate hikes, balance sheet run- runoff, and tightening financial conditions. Now he's pretty much the exact opposite, indicating a willingness, willingness to cut rates and effectively do what Trump tells him. Absolutely. And you, you, know, you really don't like to see that sort of lack of independence with the Fed. Um, as it traditionally is supposed to be an independent entity. Uh, but the other thing that I found interesting was uh, that there there isn't a complete consensus within the FOMC. So there was one dissenting opinion. So James Bullard, the president of the St. Louis Fed, he has been arguing for a 25 basis point cut in this meeting. But there always is some some level of dissent. Certainly. So it's something to keep an eye on and just Trump's uh, you got to kind of take what he says with a grain of salt, although he obviously has quite a bit of power. But I remember when Obama was president and Trump would constantly criticize back then, it was either uh, Chairwoman Yellen or perhaps even Ben Bernanke. He would criticize that they were keeping interest rates way too low and had financial conditions that were far too easy. He'd constantly criticize uh, Obama and the stock market. I think he tweeted at some point a number of years ago that the stock market was one big fat bubble caused by extremely low interest rates. So you kind of got to take what he says with a grain of salt, because certainly he wants uh, the market to do well under his terms, but under no one else's. Uh, Some market action after this uh, FOMC decision. Of course, the S&P 500 hit a new all-time high. Some markets really liking what they're hearing from the Fed. Gold hit its highest level since 2013, rose above $1,400 per ounce. The 10-year Treasury note slipped at one point, sub 2%. So interest rates on the longer term bonds, the 10-year bonds heading, plunging below 2%. That indicates as yields go down, prices go up. So bond prices rallying off that as well. So interesting market action, but certainly market participants really liking what the Fed is doing here. 
Big news in the crypto space with Facebook announcing its Libra cryptocurrency. But is this really a cryptocurrency? We'll get into it. What happened was Facebook unveiled its plans for a global digital coin called Libra, which could be used to make instant and low-cost money transfers around the world from mobile devices. Effectively, they plan on implementing this digital currency with through their vast uh, applications, Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp. Libra will be a, what's called a stable coin. It's a digital currency backed by a reserve of global fiat currencies. This one's structured a bit Differently, the typical stable coin would be backed by US dollars, solely US dollars, and so it'd be effectively linked to the US dollar. But Libra will be backed by a number of global currencies, I'm assuming US dollar, yen, euro, uh, Swiss franc, a number of different currencies, so it won't necessarily be 100% correlated to any one asset. It'll be you know, backed by a diversified portfolio of fiat currencies. And it's not just an initiative solely backed by Facebook. There are a number of large corporations backing it. I believe there might be upwards of 100, but some of the bigger names would be Visa, MasterCard, Lyft, Spotify. A quote from Facebook's David Marcus, who is leading this initiative. He stated, quote, the internet has given everyone access to the world's information and democratized access to free communications, but money has stayed the same. Basically what Facebook's trying to do here is really innovate in the uh, digital currency and financial transaction space, really trying to make financial transactions much, much easier over the internet. Libra will be backed by a pool of currencies and assets stored around the world. It will not have a fixed exchange rate against any one traditional currency, such as dollars or euros. Though it will not swing as wildly as currencies, cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin, Ethereum, and the like, which are not backed by any hard assets. Interesting play by Facebook with Libra here. What are your thoughts on this new supposed cryptocurrency? Yeah, so I guess first would be the partnerships. And so they currently have an association with 28 companies. They're, by the time they launch, they want to have 100, as you had mentioned. Uh, but what's interesting, and you know, you mentioned Visa and Uber, it's interesting how long they've been in discussion with some of these companies, as you would have thought that this would be over a very long period of time, and I'm sure with some of their partners it has been. But I believe they were quoted with PayPal only having been in discussions with them for like two weeks before this announcement. So it will be interesting once you see some of the due diligence done on this and once it's actually executed, how this plays out. Right, yeah, I read the white paper and it doesn't really have too much for detail. It's still you know, largely an idea. I believe they're looking to have it finalized by what, 2020? Yes, yeah, and so the lack of detail is a little bit disconcerting. But the other aspect I wanted to point out was that really this type of service offering already does exist in China with WeChat. So it's really just a, a kind of goal to emulate uh, the WeChat service offering from Chinese company Tencent, which is a great service offering in the sense from the company's standpoint, as it's completely immersed in the lives of Chinese people for payments, for it's a double-sided marketplace, uh, similar to like an eBay, functions many different ways in their lives. The other interesting aspect is how Bitcoin has reacted to uh, the market action of Bitcoin with this announcement is you've seen it up over $11,000 for a bit today. And yeah, I think it's got, came down a bit down below $11,000, but it has seen a little bit of a resurgence with some of this positive uh, press. Well, certainly a big rally in Bitcoin. I believe it bottomed in the 
$3,600 range not too long ago, and now it's uh, nearly or perhaps tripled off the lows. So sentiment certainly turning around on the cryptocurrency space. As for Libra, I want to tell it how it is. My opinion is this is not a real cryptocurrency, even though they branded it as such. The reason, in my opinion, it's not a real cryptocurrency is that it uses what's called to, it's called a permission blockchain. This means that it is not a decentralized uh, digital asset. The blockchain, Libra's blockchain, will be controlled by a number of large corporations, at least at the start. And to be a true cryptocurrency, you need to have a decentralized blockchain that is not controlled by anyone that is immutable, i.e. transactions cannot be reversed and the blockchain cannot be manipulated or, or changed over time. Currently, Libra is not going to have that. It's going to have this private permission blockchain and only large corporations that put up, I believe, $10 million are allowed to be involved in verifying this this Libra blockchain. So in my opinion, Libra, not necessarily a cryptocurrency. In addition, this Libra, it is a stable coin, but shockingly, it doesn't pay any interest on reserves. So the way Libra works is it takes money from investors, fiat currency, consider it US dollars, and they go ahead and invest that in treasuries. Well, right now, short-term treasury bonds are yielding above 2%, I believe in the around 2.3% range. And the Libra organization gets to keep all of this. They flow none of this invest this investment income through interest on these securities back to investors. So if you compare this to similar structures, and I believe this looks exactly like a money market ETF, basically an exchange traded fund holding sovereign debt, holding T-bonds, typically these treasury bill ETFs have an MER or management expense ratio of about 0.15 to 0.2% or 15 to 20 basis points. If you apply that same analogy to Libra, this stablecoin, where they're in fact not paying out any interest and keeping it all for themselves, you can consider that the equivalent of an MER or management expense ratio equivalent to the interest payments that they receive on the reserve, which could be as high as 2.3%. So in my opinion, Libra is basically a money market ETF with, with fees that are 10 to 15x higher than their closest comparable, which is pretty shocking given what Facebook says they're trying to accomplish. But if we really do a deep down analysis of this. It's just an absolute profit machine for the backers. And I think investors here, they're just being ripped off pretty badly by not getting access to any of the interest provided by the reserves and the Libra organization, which includes Facebook. They're keeping it all. So in my opinion, this is just an extremely high cost money market fund and investors getting ripped off. And it's not a true cryptocurrency because it's a permission blockchain and it's not fully decentralized. Yeah. And, and with Facebook, the year that Facebook has had this year, one would have thought that they would maybe try to move back a little bit to a little less regulated areas. And this is just a full dive into the most regulated area of uh, of business in commerce, financial services. Certainly, they attracted criticism from bankers, politicians throughout the world. You're hearing it in the US, you're hearing it in Europe. So certainly uh, a number of high-ranking officials taking a close look at Libra. The other thing I would caution people looking to get involved in Libra and perhaps hold some 
is that Facebook has always really played fast and loose with privacy rules. And financial transactions are perhaps some of the most uh, important for individuals' privacy. That's something to take into consideration is how are they going to protect your privacy? Are they going to take what you're doing with your money and sell it to advertisers? Remember, this is a company that uh, allowed you know, Russia to infiltrate their social networks and, and heavily influence the U.S. government elections. Something to keep in mind is potential privacy issues with this Libra stablecoin. So I caution investors and participants in this project to really take that into account on how you deal with it going forward. We had a Silicon Valley tech unicorn making its public market debut last week with Slack going public through what's known as a direct listing, not a traditional IPO or initial public offering. What Slack did is they went public via direct listing, which entails them just listing their stock on a public exchange without the concurrent uh, equity raise, which you would find within initial public offerings. So they did not do an underwritten equity financing. They just straight up listed their shares on the market and let it trade. Some price action here. The shares soared at the market open to $38.50. Now this is versus the so-called reference price of $26 per share that the bankers somehow came up with or made up, if you will, rallying nearly 50% above this $26 per share reference price. This public market value indicated Slack was worth 20 billion, nearly triple its last private funding round valuation of 7.1 billion in 2018. So quite a rally in the valuation for private market investors over the past year. Wanted to chat about why go the direct listing route. Now, I believe Slack is the second technology company to go public via this route, the first being Spotify not too long ago. By going this route, Slack will avoid paying multi-million dollar underwriting fees to Wall Street banks. While existing shareholders, including employees and venture capital firms, they will be able to sell shares immediately versus a traditional IPO where they have something called a lockup where investors aren't able to sell their shares for a number of time, typically about six months post the going public transaction. But in this direct listing, uh, VCs and private market backers of Slack can sell their shares immediately. The, the other reason in to go the route of direct listing aside from saving on the fees and the liquidity for investors is they just don't need the cash to do uh, equity offering that goes with the traditional IPO. So Slack had roughly $841 million in cash and cash equivalents in its most recent fiscal year. Financial performance, it had negative cash flow of less than $100 million. So over eight years of cash burn on the balance sheet, which is certainly more than sufficient to execute their near and medium term business plans. Compared to the top 10 software IPOs over the past 12 months, they're trading at, I believe on average, nearly double their IPO prices on average. Slack up about 50% compared to its reference price. So this is performance, you know, not quite as aggressive as other tech IPOs, but who's going to complain with 50% uh, increase in the share price on day one? Wanted to talk about some shareholders. VC firm Excel owns 23.8% of Slack. Firm Andreessen Horowitz owns 13.2%. Slack co-founder and CEO Stuart Butterfield controls 8.4%. So those are some of the major shareholders. Interesting story on how Excel got their massive stake. They actually backed the company 
they put $1.5 million into it in the seed round, which was the first round of funding back when Slack was in fact a gaming company called Tiny, Tiny Spec. The way Slack evolved over time is it actually started as this online gaming company, which was a failure, but they realized that this messaging platform that they built into the game could be a commercial success. So they spun out Slack, shut down the game, and there you go. Now Slack is worth $20 billion and Excel's investment, their $1.5 million investment, is worth multiple billions and an absolutely huge return for them. Blog post from uh, one of the backers of Excel or one of the backers from Excel of Slack, he wrote in a blog post, quote, Slack is a great reminder that the most interesting companies are often the ones whose courses aren't easily charted. The commonalities between those companies start and end with that drive, creativity and resilience of their founders and early team members. So there you have it, quite the return for Excel and a really interesting public offering or public listing for Slack. What are your thoughts on this direct listing? Yeah, I guess just to go back to your comments about their their pivot from the video game company to the basically the chat app is it, it provides a great example of rationale for a founding team to pivot and yeah really just really provide solid rationale for that um, there are times when a company should pivot into a more profitable area and other times where they should just shut it down and and start it back back up from scratch but yeah the, the interesting things that you've been reading are you i think around the time of the spotify direct listing as well you kind of saw the same articles that are arguing that really the direct listings will hurt and potentially even just kill investment banking. But you know, my thoughts on that would be that this is unlikely to be that widespread is I think it works really well for companies such as Spotify and Slack that are very well known within the investment community and also don't need cash. Those types of high growth companies, unicorn companies, are kind of few and far between. If you are looking to raise cash, an IPO is a great way to do so. And the only unfortunate part is that it is quite expensive, but capital does have a cost. So I do think that, you know, whilst the investment banks will be all right, they won't be going anywhere. But yeah, I, I thought those articles were quite interesting. Uh, the other aspect is the difference between the IPO price and a, a reference price. And you know why the example isn't really a perfect apples to apples comparison is, as mentioned, Slack had a reference price of $26 a share, but no shares actually traded hands at that point. And whereas in an IPO, they do raise that initial amount of money at that share price and then the share price will typically trade above that ideally in a properly priced IPO. But really yeah, just a comparison between the two where no shares actually do trade hands at that reference price but may be used to value employee options or things of that nature. Yeah, it's interesting the notion of reference price which is pretty much just made up by Investment bankers a little bit off the market here with a $26 reference price, the stock soaring to $38.50, nearly 50% above that and trading 137 million shares on its first day of listing, which is 71% of the company. Many uh, new shareholders getting involved and probably quite a few older shareholders utilizing this direct listing to exit successful investment in Slack. 
continuing on with our series on HBC, Hudson's Bay, and its Go Private offer from Insiders. Last week, a well-known activist investor, Land and Buildings, it skewered HBC, and it's seeking a substantial increase in their Go Private offer. What activist investor Land and Buildings Investment Management did, they blasted HBC's special committee noting that the Go Private offer, quote, materially undervalues the exceptional assets the company owns. By exceptional assets, as we discussed before, HBC owns a number of extremely high quality real estate properties. And in fact, the vast majority of the value behind HBC is in their prime real estate assets. That's really the crown jewel that the insiders are seeking to capitalize on to crystallize that value for themselves and be able to pay public shareholders a mere pittance of that private market value that they ascribe to those real estate assets. Land and Buildings, the activist investor, indicated that the special committee could boost its 945 offer, or this investor group could boost their 945 offer to $18 per share just by using proceeds from recent asset sales. That's pretty much money they already have in the bank or will have shortly. They also asked the special committee of independent directors tasked with evaluating the latest offer to hire a truly independent investment bank to evaluate the value of Hudson Bay's real estate and retail banners. Land and Buildings believes it's highly unlikely that a majority of shareholders outside the buyout group will approve the transaction. And the reason why is because... The company said, HBC said, that the real estate was worth as much as $6.4 billion or over $35 per share just a couple years ago. More recently, its CEO just last year said the real estate was worth $28 per share. And now they come back to shareholders and try to take them out for $9.45 per share. So many shareholders really not liking that dynamic. They want all of that real estate value. They really want management to crystallize that value for them. And they want to capitalize and realize that discounted value. Now, what I believe, and it's somewhat, you know, there could be a somewhat nefarious plan by management here is to show poor performance, get the stock price down, take it out for pennies on the dollar and crystallize all that uh, unrealized real real estate value for themselves. You got to worry that that's a potential possibility here. And hopefully the special committee of independent directors at HBC are looking into that possibility. 30 minutes after uh, lit, Jonathan Litt, who is the leader uh, and founder of this activist investor, Land and Buildings, a letter was, after his letter was published, Richard Baker and the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan Board, they previously had an agreement where Baker would buy teachers' stake at 90.45 per share. They actually canceled that agreement and teachers went and sold their stake into the market at 9.45 per share. Multiple parties stepped up to buy the nearly 18 million shares that teachers owned. Some background, teachers, the pension plan first invested in HBC in 2013 when it helped finance the acquisition of Saks Fifth Avenue. So Ontario teachers nursing some losses there, but perhaps uh, just cutting a loser loose and moving on, taking their proceeds at 9.45 per share. They won't see any additional upside of this potential transaction, but clearly they're just kind of fed up, washing their hands of the situation. And with that, uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens with you, with this vote that is to be held. What are your thoughts on this potential transaction here? Yeah, one of the things that they were asking the special committee to to do is really just engage the, as you had mentioned, engage an investment bank and really just to run a proper bidding process. 
to get the highest value for the shareholders, which is a very reasonable, a very reasonable ask and something that it doesn't by any of the statements, it doesn't appear that this has been an auctioned off entity. But as well, their their other argument is that with this bid is really just being financed through the planned sale of the European assets, which would be for, I believe that stake is worth about, about $1.5 billion. And so current shareholders wouldn't realize any of the value of that sale and then would still be giving up the entirety of the rest of the real estate portfolio. Um, so really their comments are just that current shareholders should participate in some of the value from selling out this, selling off this entity, which is pretty valid. Certainly it seems like management is perhaps uh, pickpocketing the shareholders here. There is going to be all this cash from these asset sales and they're effectively using it to take out minority shareholders at pennies on the dollar. I mean, $9.45 versus the value they pegged for the real estate assets at uh, $28 to $35 per share. That's a substantial discount to this supposed net asset value that they have communicated to the market. And you have seen independent valuations. So in my opinion, the company should be shopped. They should try to find other buyers for it. If this truly is a bona fide insider bid, then they should let other parties take a look at it to try to you know, find greater value for the independent shareholders here. That's really the board of directors job is to help realize the highest price for the shares. The investor discontent is is valid in the sense that, yeah, that the management team is, is not injecting any of their own capital into the business, just using the sale, sale proceeds. And so it's not even comparable to a turnaround situation where the management team would come in, inject capital into the mm. business and turn it around, similar to what was happening at Sears, although that was quite a quite a debacle and not quite as simple as that. But it was a turnaround strategy where this just seems to be an outright sale. Yeah, certainly shareholders frustrated. IPO'd, I believe, in 2012 at $17 per share. Now they're trying to take it out for uh, nearly half the price. And so shareholders are very unimpressed with the price. And it's being taken out by a group at a very low valuation and the group, like the share price was that low because of this group due to their poor operating performance. They really uh, did shareholders wrong. They did not operate the business well. They caused the share price to suffer and they're they're really trying to, in my opinion, perhaps rip off shareholders and uh, you know effectively take shareholder cash, pay them a bit of it, at a 945 bid and then retain all the upside for themselves, which is unfortunate. So it's good to see an activist get involved, rattle the cages and try to get more value for minority shareholders. Put out a blog post last week entitled, does investing in high quality stocks work? Well, in fact, does. It certainly does work. And there's many ways to quantitatively view quality of a stock. We've tested, back-tested, simulated, both from a quantitative and qualitative viewpoint, the vast majority of quality metrics. And we settled pretty much on our two favorite ones, which is return on capital, being operating income over capital invested in the business, and the second being gross profits over assets. Both of these metrics just really measure the efficiency in which the company can generate profits on the invested capital or the assets of the business. What we did is we ran 20-year simulations on US and Canadian stocks, monthly rebalanced of top and bottom decile quality portfolios. So the top decile quality portfolio, it selects 
um, you know, the top 10% of the highest quality stocks within either Canada or the US rebalanced on a monthly basis. And over 20 years, the results were actually pretty astounding on uh, this return on capital quality metric. In Canada, the top 10% highest quality stocks compounded at over 15% annualized in Canada. And in the US, uh, north of 12.3% annualized. That again is return on capital. So the Canadian portfolio, if you invested $100,000 in the top 10% quality stocks deemed quality on return on capital, you'd have $1.6 million. And in the US on that 12.3% annualized portfolio, you would have nearly $1 million off that $100,000 investment. So substantial gains, substantial market beating returns by looking at the highest quality stocks. You'll see the same thing on the gross profit over asset metric. In Canada, those compounded or returned 14.3% annually over 20 years, and in the US, nearly 13% annualized. Conversely, if we look at the bottom decile, bottom 10% of the lowest quality stocks, in Canada, they lost over 9%. That's negative 9.3% per year over 20 years, turning your $100,000 investment into only $15,000. So an $85,000 loss over two decades, which would really hurt. And that's what investing in the lowest quality return on capital stocks uh, will get you. In the US, not as bad, but they did turn around negative 6.4% annually over 20 years. So substantial losses there. Looking at gross profits over assets in Canada and the US returned negative 1.8% and negative 3% annually, respectively, for those two metrics in Canada and the US. Bottom line, certainly take quality investing into account when investing in stocks. Take a look at return on capital and gross profit over assets, how efficiently a company can turn their assets and capital into operating profits. Make sure to look at equities of companies generating the highest return on capital and perhaps sell or even short sell those generating the lowest or negative returns on capital, negative gross profits. And really, you know, bottom line is you want to invest in highly profitable companies and sell, not hold, or even sell short those generating losses or the lowest return on capital. Effectively, companies not earning their cost of capital. I encourage you to read the blog post on quality investing. And that wraps it up for episode 19 of the Absolute Return Podcast. If you like it, you can check out more on absolutereturnpodcast.com or any of your favorite podcast players. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple iTunes if you enjoyed it. And we will chat with you next week. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty expressed or implied is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.